I was minding my own business this morning when a hacker came along and stole my data from the unsecured public network. Gee, I wish there was some way to prevent that from happening. All you need is ExpressVPN. A VPN, or virtual private network, encrypts your data so the bad guys can't steal it. Wow! Have you ever heard of dynamic pricing? What's that? Online retailers charge you more based on where you live. With ExpressVPN, you can appear anywhere you want and get the best deal. That's my favorite kind of deal. What else can ExpressVPN do for me? You can get access to streaming content that's normally blocked in your region. Could I even use it to get past restrictions on work or school networks? Yes, all you have to do is use the ExpressVPN app on your device. You can even use it on your router. That's right. Just go to expressvpn.com forward slash capital A capital C capital P for a special offer and get three months free when you sign up for one year of service. What a deal. Thanks, ExpressVPN. That's expressvpn.com forward slash capital ACP. It's time for the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent Ether and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Discord. Links in the description. This week's episode... From the Files of Project Blue Book, Part 4. This week's episode, From the Files of Project Blue Book, Part 4. I was going to say, this is like the fourth one we've done. Yeah, I really like these because there are so many good cases hidden in the Files of Project Blue Book. And pretty much everything I look at for this type of episode... If you look at the summary card, it says that it's been solved. But then when you read the case, you're like, hmm, that doesn't sound like a weather balloon, you know? Weren't we going to give the listeners a little background this time around? Well, first, before we do that, I'm going to give a shout out to our live audience. Hi, live audience. Before, like at the beginning of the episode, because by the <laughs> end, we're on the, we're on the West Coast of the United States. And we've got people listening from all over the place. So it's not unusual by the end for people to have checked out because, you know, they they have to go to sleep or they're busy or whatever. And, you know, it is it is a Friday night. So often people have plans anyways. So let's give a shout out to our live audience. We got Pimp Simpins, Sky Knight 11, Zenith, Zenith, probably Zenith. Yeah, Zenith, Uh, the Chad, um, Miggles Wick, Donut Slayer, Gray Scaling, uh, higher theory dot, dot, dot. What is, what is this higher theory? Um, I think I know. I just want to make sure I get it right. anti Squatch, but wait, how do I get the full name? I don't get the full name here. We have oh, quite we an audience. This higher season. theories podcast. I'm guessing that's a podcast. I'll have to check it out. Oh yeah. I think I already checked it out. I'll have to check it out again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We appreciate you being in the live audience. And this is on Discord, so anybody who wants to listen to us live and suffer through our <laughs> cryptids, <laughs> our you know our mistakes and everything that I have to edit out, then 
Come join us on Discord for the live show. This time we're doing it on Friday, but actually because Agent ETA has switched uh, schedules at work, we're going to start doing it on Tuesday evenings at some time. We haven't decided exactly when, but we're going to move the live show to Tuesday. Agent Kruger also has more availability on yeah, Tuesday, so, so it's going to work out. Yeah, it'll be better all around. So apologies for anybody if that's an inconvenience, but hopefully it's convenient for more people than it's not. Or better, because it's a Tuesday. Yeah, so hopefully yeah, hopefully that works out. All right, this week we're talking about Project Blue Book. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Project Blue Book, I mean, who is? I mean, everybody should know about Project Blue Book. This was the Air Force's investigative efforts to look into UFOs. Specifically, it was the public-facing office that would look at reports and make public statements and determinations for UFO sightings. Because there were quite a few that were, you know, national uh, headlines or, you know, national sightings or there was a region. Think of like the Phoenix Lights where an entire city, like a big city, saw something and then people wanted answers. That was what Project Blue Book was supposed to be for, was investigating UFO cases. But after an early period of actually trying to do that, it ended up being more of a way of sort of debunking stuff and they didn't really investigate stuff after, after, you know, a certain point. Um, probably the golden age would be when, uh, Rupert was in charge of it, but after he left, it kind of went downhill from there, you know, but there's a lot more to it. Maybe we should do a whole episode just on project blue book sometime. Cause there's a lot of really interesting topics we can go into, but for now, Let's go into some of the files of Project Blue Book. Sounds you, good to me. You want to go first, Agent Ether? Well, why don't I do my short one, and then you can do a couple short ones. All right. So we'll pass it back and forth. So I was thinking to myself today, what kinds of people that I would take most seriously if they were to come to me and tell me they'd witnessed a UFO, witnessed something unusual. And of course, there's pilots, former military that sort of thing. Um, and then I thought, doctors. I work in the medical field. If one of the doctors I work with came to me and said they'd seen a UFO, I'd figure they were either pulling my leg or telling the truth. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's got to be one or the other, it's right? got to be one or the other. <laughs> so what, what part, you work in the medical field doing uh, experiments or research on captured alien corpses. Is this correct? Yes, that that is correct. We bombard them with radiation to see if our uh, radiation suits, when we take them into space, are actually working. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Kind of use them like mice, <laughs> you know? Let's hear your file. <laughs> okay, it's a short one. It's a short one. So we have Dr. Wagner from Menominee Falls, which is named after a Native American tribe and is now like the headquarters for Coles how far it's come. And this was in Wisconsin on November 14th, 1964. He wrote directly to Captain Hector Quintanilla at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, he said, because he saw that name in his local paper. So that's who he reached out to. He was stargazing with two 10-year-olds uh, girls and a friend who is also a doctor named Rudy Marin, when all three of them, and it doesn't say his friend, it just says him and the girls, saw three reddish-hued objects in the north-south axis near the constellation of Hydra. They hmm. would travel rapidly 
uh, past the North Star. They were evenly spaced about three to five degrees. And the two girls noticed right away and they said, look at that. And just as they said that, the two objects closest to Polaris merged, then came apart in a parallel path closer together than before. Then the three objects disappeared behind a constellation, and here I could not read which constellation it was, as is often the case. Some of the file was uh, not legible. The estimated time of travel was five to six seconds from the east to the west. So the three objects were estimated to have a magnitude of two to three, which I think means in comparison to other stars. I can't remember which star is magnitude one or magnitude 10, but that would be on a, like a scale. Yeah. And it may have had a faint trail or luminosity following the object, but the good doctor stated it was not anything like the tail of a meteor. Hmm. Okay. It was quickly moving, and the way that it was grouped and the way it was traveling, he said, I hope others saw this interesting sight most unusual. The uh, data was sent to Dr. J. Allen Hynek, a consultant for the Air Force Project, and the doctor was informed that there was, the investigation was inconclusive. They said it was similar to the observation of birds, but there was no evident light source strong enough to reflect off of the birds, and the case was left as unidentified. Interesting. Yeah. So that's a kind of a weird one, but there's, so that's pretty much all there is to it, though. Yeah, so I looked around for around the same date, around the same area. I didn't see any other sightings. It sounds like it was quite brief, hmm. but it also sounds like it wasn't a meteor from what he described. It was something, but we don't know what. I did find a couple other, not files, but references online to that area. There was a sighting in August of 2017. Someone was out in their driveway and they noticed a very bright white light and it was moving too slow to be a meteor. They thought it was a plane, but there were no flashing lights. It was too bright. It had no wing lights. Its speed suddenly increased and came at us extremely fast. Then it stopped in midair and then disappeared. Huh. So that was interesting. And then in, uh, say, I have October 2012, there were three orange moving lights in the shape of a triangle. This uh, person was walking home from the library. It was about twilight on its way to full dark, but not quite when they saw three copper orange shapes in the shape of a triangle with two on top and one on the bottom. Now, this person was cutting through a park, and there was a woman walking her dog, but she didn't seem to notice, and he didn't point it out to her. They weren't super bright, but their color and placement and formation made them hard to miss. They did flicker like stars, but as he watched, the two lights that made up the bottom of the triangle very slowly rotated, changing the distance between the two lights slightly while the top light remained stationary, and then the lights winked out one by one like a candle would be uh, guttering out. 
and there was nothing but sky. Hmm. So that's it for my first little case. That doesn't sound normal. No, none of those sound normal. <laughs> but they all sound believable. Yeah. As a, as a, as a sighting, nothing extraordinary, but definitely something unusual that you yeah. can't explain. Yeah, they just saw something weird and they reported it, that's basically. Right. Yeah, That's right. All right. Well, I will get into my first case here, which is, I thought, a really fun one. So if you've listened to this show before, you know that we've talked about Kenneth Arnold. And this was a famous sighting on June 24th, 1947, that basically kicked off the modern wave of UFOs. This is this is the event. Kenneth Arnold is the event that has like the dividing line between, you know, older UFO stuff and newer UFO stuff. That's generally when people will, you know, divide it. So this is a sighting that happened 10 days before Kenneth Arnold's sighting on June 14th, 1947. And this happened in Bakersfield, California. So on the files, there's a cover card and I'll say which page I'm getting stuff from in case you guys want to go and look it up yourself. You can go ahead and look this up. You can go to fold three. You can look up the June 14th, 1947 Bakersfield, California sighting, and you can read everything in the file that I've seen myself. So the cover card says that the conclusion is other birds, <laughs> so, you know, Birds. Hmm. Well, I mean, skip this one, right? If it's just birds, it's probably not that interesting. Mine was also birds, but not birds. Yeah, exactly. So the brief summary on the front card is observer first sighted 10 objects to the east with one straggler later saw seven object flying in a V. It was a civilian witness and there were 17 total objects. On the second page, you see it has the incident number. Some of these have incident numbers, even though, unfortunately, most of them do not when you're looking at uh, fold three. So if you go to fold three and try to find incident number 38 or whatever, you probably won't be able to. You'll have to look up the location and the date instead. But anyways, on page two, it says it's incident number 29, 14th of June, 1947, uh, 1200 hours or I mean noon and 14:15 so that's 2:15 in the afternoon in Bakersfield, California. The observer and experienced pilot reported sighting 10 and later 7 objects at 8500 feet altitude traveling 350 miles an hour in a loose V formation. Definitely sounds like birds. Yeah, it does actually at first, at first glance. 350 miles per hour. There's all kinds of birds that can fly that fast. <laughs> They're just using the wrong technology in our airplanes, right? Um, although the objects were apparently at a considerable distance, the reporter described them as being similar to the XF5U-1 flying flapjack. And the flying flapjack is sort of like a, you know, it's like a flat airplane with two propellers. And it, it does kind of look like a flying saucer. So some people have said that this is what's responsible for many of the flying saucer reports of the time. But the problem with that is, is that only two flying flak jacks were ever built and only one was actually fully built and actually flown and tested. The other one was never completed. So basically only one flapjack was ever built and flown. So obviously that's not what we're looking at here. If we're talking about a total of, you know, 10 objects or uh, 17 objects total, I mean. 
So that's what he said it looked like was the flying flapjack. You can look that up, Google it. There's a Wikipedia article with a picture and it's a pretty unique looking airplane. But uh, when you see a full size picture of it, it does not look like a flying saucer. Not really. Anyways, he stated that the uh, that he attached no particular importance to the sighting until he read of the Cascade Mountain sighting, incident number 17. He then recalled this incident, and I'm guessing incident 17 has to be Kenneth Arnold's incident because he saw that in the news and then he decided to report his sighting. And then on page two, it, after that, it says, Opinion, there is no information contained in this report to refute the assumption that these objects were ordinary aircraft beyond the range of identification. The fact that no one else in Bakersfield reported observing anything unusual tends to substantiate this conclusion. Now, this is something I've seen many times in the files, is that, well, nobody else reported it, so it must be fake. And I think that's kind of silly, because... If you look at like local newspapers and stuff like that, you'll see that other people did witness this stuff. They just didn't tell the Air Force about it. And also there are many cases where there are multiple witnesses, but for some reason or other, sometimes very obvious reasons, like people are afraid to report something because they don't want to be seen as crazy. They don't want to have it come back and bite them in the ass and they lose their job or whatever. A lot of the times people just don't report stuff. So I think that's sort of like, I don't know what kind of logical fallacy it would be, but I think that's a strange thing to say is like, well, nobody else reported it, so it must be fake. You know, I think that's kind of a mistake on their part. Maybe they were doing that to try to, you know, rush the investigation or to not have to really take it seriously. But this page was probably written by uh, Alan Hynek, I believe, but it was not signed by him. But that's what uh, it appears maybe he wrote it. I'm not sure. So on page three, the next page says uh, incident 29, Portland, Oregon is crossed out and that's replaced with Bakersfield, California. And we'll get into why that was originally reported as Oregon first. Uh, And then so Bakersfield, California, 14th of June, 1947. There's nothing whatever in this incident to suggest that the objects observed were of astronomical origin their maneuvers and the relatively long time they were in sight definitely preclude any possible astronomical interpretation. It is of interest to note that in this locality and this and at this season, other possibly similar non-astronomical incidents were reported. For example, number 17 and number 68. So that's that page was definitely written by Alan Hynek. 100% was written by him. And uh, he's talking about astronomical stuff there. And he's, you know, he's saying, well, the, it kind of contradicts the previous page saying that, you know, maybe it is something because there was very similar things that happened around the same time. Page four is, uh, has a, is titled Dr. Hynek's evaluations is extracted from project grudge report. And the list of case numbers has the page is basically a list of case numbers organized by different headings and this one under under heading number three non-astronomical with no explanation evident subgroup b evidence offers offered suggests no explanation in other words Heineck is basically saying that it's unexplained whereas the the cover card says that it's birds but other than the cover card i didn't see anything anywhere in the file 
does it say anything about birds. It never talks about birds except on the front page. It's kind of weird, right? Does the front page have a a public face or is it all classified? I believe that would have all been classified at the time. That is very strange then. But there might have been pressure from higher up to come to some sort of conclusion on these things. You know, they don't want it to be unexplained. They want you to be able to come up with an explanation for what these people are seeing. And that's, you know, that's what your job is. So they probably felt like they had to come up with explanations for as many of them as possible. And anybody who wants to know a little bit behind the scenes, I did read uh, all 20 chapters of um, Rupert's book about his time working in Project Blue Book. So that's a really good read. Uh, Maybe not that entertaining for some people, but I thought it was an excellent book. And uh, I don't necessarily take it at face value, but it's still a fun book. Anyways, um, on page five, there appears to be a page from the Grudge Report, and it's a little hard to read. But it has some stuff on there about, you know, evaluating cases and whatever. But on the bottom, there's an excerpt from the bottom that says, In the following section of this report, each remaining unexplained incident is considered separately. It is not the intent to generally discredit the character of observers, but each case has undesirable elements, and these cannot be disregarded. The numerical designation is merely the categorical order of the incident in the project files. And then 29, this case, is circled from a list of case numbers. So I'm guessing that that, you know, excerpt applies to this case. And just as a side, if you haven't heard me talking about Project Blue Book before, they say that um, uh, it is not the intent to discredit observers or witnesses, but they did that all the time. They constantly attacked witnesses. Like their characters, their abilities, their sanity. Like, if you go back to the first episode I ever did about the Michigan swamp gas, Alan Hynek specifically said that he went around investigating the witnesses rather than the event. So you have this astronomer running around interviewing people, asking if this is a reliable witness, which I suppose that that's not a horrible thing to do. But on the other hand, he always found something negative to say about the witnesses, (laughs) you know? So it's like they're looking for... Uh, you know, ways to discredit the witnesses, despite them saying that they're not. All right, so on page six, we have a summary that is just, you know, sort of like a bunch of different data points. So the name is redacted. The occupation is a pilot. It was observed from a front yard. The direction of flight, the first group was south to north. The second group was north to south. It was flying in a V formation with one object straggling in the rear the sound was uh, sound was not stated. The size, it resembled the XF5U-1 flying flapjack. The apparent construction, flying machines. Weather conditions, clear and sunny. And I skipped a lot of them that were either not filled out or repeating stuff or whatever. On page 7 and 8, you have the actual witness statement. And this is where, you know, this is where the fun is. You know, this is where all the good stuff is. So here's the witness statement. Uh, let's see. Also, um, page eight is an expanded statement. I'm not sure why there are two. Seven is like a summary, and then page eight and page nine is like the full statement. And it looks like the that was from an interview that happened in Portland, Oregon. So they caught up to the guy and interviewed him in Oregon, and that's why the file is said Oregon, and it, they crossed it out. And 
I don't know if this is from an interview with a newspaper person, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. But also, one thing that was sort of weird looking is on the top of page eight, under the unclassified stamp, it says uh, certificate, but it's all caps and there's dashes between the letters. So C dash E dash R dash. I've never seen that before and it's a little strange looking and I'm not sure why it's there. But uh, anyways, the statement is, my name is redacted. I'm 47 years old and have flown since I was 19 years old. Then I'm, I'm going to skip some from this first paragraph because he goes on and on about experience and stuff. I have done stunt flying for air shows and various other types of aeronautical expedition ex exhibitions. Skipping some brother was Tex Rankin, who was quite well known in both civilian and military flying circles. So, I mean, they redacted his name, but there you go right there. You could probably figure out who he was if you wanted to. And <laughs> even if you're lazy and you don't feel like it, Actually, in the back of the file, there's newspaper clippings I'll talk about that have his name right there unredacted. So it's like, why did they bother redacting it in his witness statement if they're then just going to put it in the file? And I don't know. It's weird. It doesn't make any sense. But we've talked about that before, how it's very common for the witness names to be redacted in one part of the file, but and not another. Pop up in another part. Yeah, it happens all the time. Yeah, my next case, though. Yeah. That's redacted. The whole case? The whole case. Okay. Well, that's an interesting case. All right. Let's get back to my case. <laughs> Your case is long. Yeah, this is a long one, but I thought it was really fun because it sort of substantiates the Kenneth Arnold case. Oh, this is your long one. I thought you had yeah. short one. No, no. This is my long one. And then I have a couple of really short ones. Oh. So we'll do this one. Okay. All right. So, uh, so text, uh, anyways, to date, I have accomplished 7,000 hours in the air as pilot of both civilian and military aircraft. I am well qualified to say when I see articles flying through the air. So this is a pilot with a significant amount of military and civilian experience. And he did like stunt flying for air shows and stuff. So he's also probably was a very talented pilot. They don't just let anybody do those stunts. You got to be really good. I think, I don't know. And he sounds like he knows he's not going to be believed. Yeah. And he's kind of, you know, trying to show everyone that he's a credible witness. Right. So that was the, there's more background that he put in there, but I did, I skipped over some of it because I didn't want it to get too, too long. Anyways, here's the sighting at approximately 12 noon on the 14th of June, I was lying in the front yard of my home. There was a lad mowing the lawn at the time. I looked into the sky and saw 10 articles flying from the south to the north at what I would judge to be 8,500 feet. Now he calls, he calls them articles instead of airplanes because he doesn't know that they're airplanes. He doesn't, this was before, you know, people really used this term flying saucer or UFO commonly. So he didn't know what to call them. So he calls them articles uh, just, just to kind of clear that up because it's sort of confusing. The objects were flying at approximately what I would judge to be 350 miles per hour. As I have stated before, I have done quite a lot of map work for the U.S. Forest Service. I distinctly remember that at the time I saw the articles, I mentioned it to the lad who was mowing the lawn at the time. I told the lad that the objects were in all probability some sort of army or navy test planes from the nearby test centers of the deserts of Southern California. Having quite a knowledge of aircraft in general, 
I attempted to explain to the lad mowing the lawn that the objects were probably on some sort of training mission for either the Army or Navy. At that time, I did not give the slightest thought to anything but that the objects were some sort of test ship for the government services. The object resemb resembled the pictures that I have seen of the XF-5U-1, the so-called flying flapjack that the Navy is testing. After the object disappeared, I proceeded into the house and had my noon meal. At approximately 2.15, I went back into the yard to sit and lie in the shade. At this time, the objects reappeared going from north to south, although this time there were only seven of the articles. When I first saw the original ten objects, they were flying in a V formation with one object seemingly straggling in the rear of the formation. When the objects appeared the second time, they were still in the V formation, although there was only seven of the objects at this time. I remember at this time that I told the lad, who was still working on the lawn, that poor lad. <laughs> <laughs> I was getting paid. He's out there for hours. His parents are like, it's not good enough. You missed a couple of blades. Get back out there, this you know. Bakersfield, too. There's lawns in Bakersfield. Yeah, I know, right? And this is like, this is probably pretty hot out at this time of year. <laughs> but anyways, uh, that... Uh, still working on the lawn, that probably three of the objects had proceeded back to their base on a different course. I actually thought that this was the case, that the other three objects had probably gone back to their base on the other side of the mountain from Bakersfield. A week or so later, when I read of Mr. Kenneth Arnold claiming that he had seen articles flying through the air over the Cascade Mountains in Washington, I realized that the articles that I saw were probably the same thing. I was still reluctant to mention this to anyone, thinking that they would probably say that I was crazy. After some time, I mentioned the incident to the editor of the Oregonian, a Portland, Oregon newspaper. At this time, I was in Portland for the remainder of the summer. The results of the conversation with the editor of the paper is put forth in the accompanying newspaper article. I fully realize that this is a broad statement in view of the fact that there has been so much publicity put forth in various newspapers of the country. I am of sound mind in every respect, and I am firmly convinced that the articles I saw are actually some sort of flying machines, although I cannot say from where they came or to where they were going. I say what I have said with no idea of publicity or personal gain." So I have a few thoughts on this statement. Um, there was uh, only one report, right? But did they follow up to ask other people in the area, like the boy, the lad, the lad, what he had seen? Because I don't think they did. They didn't say anywhere in the file that they had tried to find other witnesses in the area. They just said that nobody reported to us specifically. Therefore, it didn't happen paraphrasing there a little bit but any anyways that's what they suggested so it doesn't appear that they did follow up and uh that's i think that's kind of sad because there's probably a ton of other witnesses in the area who also probably just thought it was you know government airplanes even though we i don't think we had anything at the time that could have fit that description uh, the altitude and speed of the objects could be vastly different than what was perceived because, you know, as anybody knows, 
it's incredibly difficult to judge these things, even for an experienced pilot. You have no frame of reference whatsoever. The weather was clear, so they were just up there in the blue sky. They could have been very, very large and far away. They could have been like a mile across each and almost in the atmosphere, or they could have been very, very tiny and very, very close, you know. But given how things move in the sky, you can get a general idea because the farther away something is kind of like the hazier it'll look, you know? So in general, I think you can get a ballpark, but that ballpark can also be very, very off. So I don't put too much stock into the numbers he provided. I'd look at it as more of just like a a pure ballpark as to what he thinks uh, may have happened. But yeah, as I mentioned earlier, there, there was uh, only one flying flapjack. It definitely could not have been that because Not only was there only one flying flapjack, but it was uh, built in the Connecticut area, I think. And we know, looking back through history, we know that this stuff has been released. And they've said that it never left that area, right? It was only tested in Connecticut. So it would not have have made its way all the way over to California, you know? Especially not 10 of them. Yeah, well, they they didn't even have 10 of them. So these would be some pretty strange birds, right? <laughs> and birds, I'm not sure that birds can fly this fast. And even though his estimate of speed is possibly not accurate, we're talking about something that's going very, very fast. And, you know, 350, what the speed of sound, depending on the density of air, is going to be something on the order of five or 600 miles an hour. So we're talking about something going half the speed of sound, unless I've completely misremembered those, you know, that number, but we're, so we're talking about something that goes very, very fast. I doubt it was a bird. And the formation of birds and how they move, there's something organic about them, you know? So if he as a pilot thinks that these are aircraft for very specific reasons, you know, in his experience, I'm sure he's seen lots of bird formations. Yeah. And he explicitly says, in his statement that it looks like a machine. He's very clear about that, that these look like machines. They did not look like birds and birds tend to have like a fluttering movement or a shaking movement as they flap their wings. It would be fairly difficult to mistake birds for airplanes. Um, I suppose it's possible under the right conditions, but I think that would be uh, kind of unusual, probably pretty rare. So he doesn't say that they were like aliens or anything weird like that. Sounds like he just thought they were military. He, he thought they were military. And then, you know, probably out of a sense of duty or who knows what, you know, after he heard Arnold's sighting, he called in or he wrote in or whatever and reported his sighting, which he thinks were probably the same things that Arnold saw. Uh, so that's, those are, that's kind of the thoughts I had on his statement. Right. And uh, as far as publicity or personal gain goes, Um, He probably had money because he was a pilot and it it suggests here that if he was vacationing in Portland and he had a house in Bakersfield that he probably was well enough off to where he wouldn't be trying to get a few extra bucks from making up a story, right? He probably wouldn't have needed to do that because he sounded like a fairly successful dude, but uh, you never know. I mean, maybe anything's possible. Um, and, and as far as like fame or publicity, maybe he just wanted his, uh, his name in the newspapers. I mean, that is a possibility, you know, we don't know for sure, but, 
Um, I think this is a reliable witness and I sort of believe what he said. Anyway, so on page 10 of the report, there's a memorandum for, for the officer in charge. And this memorandum is about looking for somebody in Palm Springs. And they say that they looked, they're looking for Mr. Redacted. And they looked at like the police department, the desert sun newspaper, the water company, gas company, telephone company, et cetera, et cetera, on and on and on. They looked for him for, you know, everywhere they could think of to look for him and they couldn't find him uh, is what they said at first. There was no record of him. They interviewed the postmaster, hadn't heard of him either. And I'm like saying, wait a minute, Palm Springs. What are we talking about? Palm Springs. This guy was in Bakersfield and then he went to Oregon for vacation. What? Maybe he has a house in Palm Springs too. Yeah. It turns out he spends the winters in Palm Springs. Of course he does. How old is he? Uh, he was 47 at the time of the sighting. 47. And he's just traveling around yeah. in his house. Can you imagine having vacation homes like that nowadays? That's what I'm saying. This guy seems like he had some resources to where he wouldn't have had to fabricate a story to make money for personal gain. Oh, well, right? Palm Springs where the weather is fabulous this time of year. In the winter it is. It, it's yeah. horrible in the summer. <laughs> if you've ever been, which we have. Uh so in the this page the fi- in the file goes on to say that they found evidence of Mr. Redacted getting mail. They found a piece of mail for him that they opened up and looked at it, and there was some discussions of various religion religious things that uh, I don't think is really relevant. And that it turns out they found out that he lived in like a trailer park. So it wasn't a fancy home. It was just sort of like a little vacation place in the winter, probably that he went to in Palm Springs. It's a little trailer, I guess. Uh, so at first I was like, is this a mistake? What does this have to do with anything? Is this from a, from a different file? Cause I have seen pages misfiled. You know, I've seen pages from another file stuck in the middle of a, a file where it shouldn't be. Um, that does happen for on occasion when you're perusing these things. So you got to be aware of that. But in this case, it turns out that this is actually pertinent and it just wasn't obvious until later on when I was reading the newspaper clippings. And in one of the clippings, it says, that he liked to vacation in uh, Palm Springs for the winter. I'm like, oh, okay, well, you know, that's why. But the thing is, is like he owns businesses and stuff. So like they're having trouble finding him. They're going to the postmaster. Why not go to one of the businesses he owns? I don't know. This whole page is just a little weird. But anyways, let's get to the newspaper clippings. All right, got one here. And the title is of the article... Pilot recalls seeing discs and his name is Dick Rankin. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. It's right there in the subheading, right? Dick Rankin tells of an odd, of odd aircraft. And I won't read the entire article because it repeats a lot of what I've already said, but um, it's interesting because in the article it says he saw the silver saucers over Bakersfield, California on June 23rd while lying on the lawn sunbathing. He told the Oregonian. Now, I don't know if you were paying attention or not, Agent Ether, but there's a couple of discrepancies here. In his witness statement he sent to the Air Force, he said he was lying in the shade, (laughs) not sunbathing. Yeah, but it's, you know, artistic license for them to describe the... uh... Yeah, doing maybe. But in his statement, he never said anything about saucers. He said they looked like the flapjacks and... They got the date wrong. Right. Yes, they did. They got the date completely wrong. Well, maybe he did not recall it when he was giving his 
statement to the newspaper. I mean, did the paper article come some time after he filed his report? This article was published um, on the 3rd of July, it says. So it, okay. it was it was recent yeah, enough. recent enough to where he should have. To where it should have been accurate, you know? Right. And I just wanted to point out those inaccuracies because I've seen this many, many times in newspapers. Um, they're not good sources of information. The, the, the newspapers are really good as a source to find out, okay, something happened and a witness saw something, but it's more often than not. It's very rare for a newspaper to report something accurately. They're always inconsistencies like this always or nearly, I should say nearly always, maybe not always, but they're almost always inaccurate. And sometimes they get some of the details very wrong. Getting the day wrong, you know, going from the 14th to the 23rd, I think that's a really important detail. And I think that's unacceptable to get that so wrong, you know. But on the other hand, newspapers are valuable in some ways, but uh, take everything in a newspaper with a grain of salt, everything. And, you know, and you think nowadays, you know, the fake news or whatever, the media inventing stuff. Nah, it's always been that way. This is nothing new, you know always been that way if you look and at historical stuff all newspapers yeah no exceptions no exceptions yeah and they, they tend to exaggerate and whatever but Embellish. I've, talk, I've talked about that before all right so also here's another little excerpt from the article i hesitated to say much about them rankin said until i noticed all the hula baloo in the papers hula baloo hula blue. <laughs> that's I, I pretty much wanted to read that just to say the word hula baloo <laughs> <laughs> what a word. I'm going to have to put that into my vernacular there because I just think it's such a silly word. Hulabaloo. What's all this hulabaloo? That's a, that's a, that's a good one. I like that. All right. Anyways, um, I puzzled over their strange shape for a while and finally concluded that they were the Navy's new XF5U-1 flying flapjacks, which are thin and round with twin propellers and stubby tail. And then it, the article goes on to talk about how only one XF5U had been built so that it couldn't be that. And it says that it never left Connecticut, so it can't be that. And then further on in the article, uh, it's there. it says, They were not weaving or bobbing in formation. I couldn't make out the number or location of their propellers and couldn't distinguish any wings or tail. They appeared almost round. They looked like pictures of the Navy's flying flapjack. So here he's saying he did not specify in his original statement whether or not he could see features such as those. But here he says he did not see those features. Again, take it with a grain of salt because it's from a newspaper, but it's an interesting detail if it's true. Rankin, who plans to spend the summer here at 834 Northeast uh, Simpson Street. <laughs> Those dicks. They just put his address right in the article. If you feel like harassing the crap out of this guy, go check him out. Here's his, Write him some fan mail. Here's his article. And for anybody listening, please, please do not go to that address in the city, which I didn't say where it is. And 
don't bother whoever lives there now. I mean, <laughs> that address is probably still there. So please, please do not go asking them about flying flapjacks because they will <laughs> probably be very confused. <laughs> but if you do, email us and tell us what happened. <laughs> don't, don't tell them that. You're incur- now you're encouraging people to go cause shenanigans. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, if the newspaper put it put his address in there, then was he really that hard to find? It's right here in, in this article that, that he gave that he sent this article to the Air Force. And yet in the Air Force files, they have this this page about how they went to Palm Springs. Like, where in the world is Carmen they, San Diego? Yeah, they went to Palm yeah. Springs and they were asking the gas company, the Chamber of Commerce, the probably the library, everybody. They're asking all the government entities around town. Have you heard of this guy? but they have his address right here. So it's, I found that very strange, you know, very strange that they couldn't find him, but uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe, maybe there's a reason for that. That was not in the file. Um, But anyways, it's now able uh, to resume a little flying for fun, but not commercially. As he said, he now operates a string of auto courts spending his winters at Palm Springs. I don't know what auto courts are. I have no idea what that is. It's just a dealership used lot. Maybe, but if he had that suggests he owned a business of some kind, right? Auto court. Maybe that means like auto mechanic or something. I don't Mm -hmm. know. But again, if he has businesses, he can't be that hard to find, right? I don't know. Uh, But anyways, a little further down on the article, it talks about other reports. So other reports came Wednesday from Astoria, Jack Hayes, patient in St. Mary's Hospital there, said he saw two of the discs Monday. What kind of hospital? Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, don't worry about that. Uh, Monday, flying, and then the word is illegible, at a rapid speed, and that they vanished behind the hills. Sorry for my reading. This font here is really tiny and I couldn't figure out how to get it to print bigger. <laughs> or maybe you need reading glasses. No, no, it's really tiny. It's like a four point font. Um, all right. Uh, that they uh, vanished behind the hills. And Miss uh, Mrs. Earl Said, uh, Sado. Ooh, there, that's you can't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Miss, Mrs. Agent Anderson, you can't, you can't that's, that's bad. I'm going to get canceled for reading this. All right. So, uh, Mrs. Earl said Fort, uh, something said that she saw a disc traveling North over Fort Stevens. Okay. So Fort Stevens Tuesday noon and that other observers saw the same objects. So that's just part of this particular newspaper and that goes to show you that there were lots of other witnesses in the area. Well, maybe not in the specific area of Bakersfield, but there were people all over the place that did see this. And I talked about this in the Kenneth Arnold episode a little bit, how it was not an isolated sighting, but there were lots and lots of other people who saw it. And then the next page, um, the last page of the file, there were there's another couple of newspaper clippings, and there's even more reports in there. Um, an excerpt is uh, new reports. Meanwhile, came in from three Oregon cities, Azteca, Aztecia, Madras, and Portland. Still another such account came from four states away at Albuquerque, New Mexico, Max Hood, 
Chamber of Commerce executive told of seeing a disc-like bluish object following a zigzag path in the northwest sky only Tuesday night. There have been similar reports the past several days from other points in New Mexico, West Texas, and Oklahoma. So the point is that people are seeing these objects all over the dang place, right? And uh, if one had time to go look at libraries and find microfiche or archives of local newspapers, I bet you could find similar sightings everywhere, like all over the dang place. They see these things seem to be popping up all over the country, but we didn't have our military did not have anything that looked like a flying, flying flapjack other than the one flying flapjack, which definitely could not have caused these sightings. Um, that, so that's, uh, sort of a strange thing, right? So I guess it was just all birds. All of them. <laughs> that's my conclusion. It was all birds. All right. So that was that one. What else you got for us, Agent Ether? Oh, I was just thinking about how it's such a shame that out there, the, there's all this knowledge at our fingertips, but we're not going to store it anywhere. Eventually, you know, the newspaper articles and clippings and the microfish films, they're not going to be available. They aren't, and they're not going to be documented like things are now on the internet. You know, there's so many servers and places to find information. You can just go and you can read about sightings. You hear about sightings 10, 10 years ago, but I feel like there's this mountain of evidence that needs to be preserved that's not going to be. There are actually some of, the, some of those microfish archives and newspaper archives, some of those are online uh, either through library websites or through the publisher themselves, like the LA Times keeps archives online that you can look at some of them. Uh, so some of them are not, though. A lot of them are not online. I was thinking more like small small towns. Right, like a small library who may may not have the resources right. to maintain a robust website. Yeah. But might have some interesting things. And not even just UFO sightings. You know, just interesting things, historical yeah. things. Yeah, all kinds of historical things. I I'm sure there are people who go and look at that stuff. In fact, I've I've read, you know, UFO books and stuff where people do go and dig through the stacks or whatever. But yeah, like you're saying, hopefully that stuff gets archived in some way to uh to preserve it, you know? Right? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, next case. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Um, I have an air intelligence information report coming from Norwalk, Connecticut. And I stumbled across this report because I was just flipping through Fold 3. And all of a sudden, there were these street maps and topography of the region. Yeah. Which is kind of, I was like, well, I haven't seen this before. That's the fun thing when you're flipping through the files. And you can just kind of like browse through them. And there's little thumbnails of each like page they're like pdfs and it'll have a, a like a little strip of thumbnails at the bottom you just kind of scroll through them and you'll see okay like text 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 you'll be like wait is, is that a photo that looks weird and you look at it and like yep that's a ufo photo or like you're saying like a map or you know like a picture of people or just something weird and you're like huh let's look at this that's right so that's exactly what happened so this report was prepared by one newton hamfelt on, let's see, October 15th, 1952. It's report 24-0-164. 
And it's about a sighting, and boy is it a doozy, that took place in January in 1952. Okay. There was a Mrs. Redacted who contacted the FBI saying she had found some unconventional aircraft and she would only divulge this information to the proper authorities. What does that mean? It means that she would only talk to somebody uh, who came out and would do a, a investigation. She wanted an investigation. Done. Oh, I she, see. Okay. She wasn't going to give up the details over the phone. She wasn't going to write a letter. She wanted somebody to come out and do an investigation. Okay. So the investigation starts, and instead of giving the interview first, it goes to character witnesses. Not witnesses of the event, but character witnesses. Yeah, pretty typical. Yeah, so... They start off with a patrolman, Mr. William Carpenter, who's the clerk of records, and they ask him to search the files for any information pertaining to her. And he doesn't find anything except the city director directory, which uh, lists her as a resident. Um, the postal clerk said he'd known Mr. Redacted and Mrs. Redacted for about 10 years, and he regarded them as honest trustworthy, loyal, and dependable people. So, so far so good? Yeah, and i just like to point out that just just how unfortunate it is that you had a lot of these people reporting the stuff. They were doing it out of a patriotic duty. You know, they were doing it as American citizens and they wanted to help the government, you know, solve these things or get to the bottom of it. Or if they saw something unusual, like let's say if you saw like communists setting up a commie bunker underground you would report that to the government and say hey this is shenanigans and here's what i saw but often they were you know there's a character assassinations against these people who were just doing what they felt was their duty so next they interviewed the postman that delivered their mail one sherwood quigley and he described them as honest reliable people but said the girl was considered high hat <laughs> Hi hat, like for from a drum set. Uh, yeah, that's. I mean, that's what it refers to. I had to go online. I guess it's slang. It means kind of a snob or a bit snooty. Oh, all right. So she's sort of a hi hat. I mean, that's. Uh, that I guess as far as character attacks go, that's not that bad. You can't. That doesn't really discredit her at all. Just you know, right? Kind of strange to have in there. But yeah. he said she was otherwise all right in every way. Okay. Well, you know. They interviewed the husband. He didn't give up much. And then they went to where she worked, which was a simple assembly factory where she put together electric and mechanical devices. Just had a simple okay. factory job. And they interviewed her manager. He had records, personnel records, rated her just as a generally good employee. However, he stated that he'd heard he... Uh, Suddenly divulges this personal information. He says he heard she had a brain tumor or some sort of injury to her brain and she needed an operation. Okay. Afterwards, it changed her for the better. Now, I don't know if he knew her as a child. I don't know where he's getting this information from. I don't know if she told him that it changed her for the better, but that sounds unlikely. That sounds like unreliable information. <laughs> what you may call a rumor or hearsay. <laughs> yeah. He goes on to say that she can fly off the handle under emotional strain and will become loud, 
belligerent and strongly opinionated. Well, but who doesn't become belligerent or opinionated under emotional strain? Well, and here's the thing, too. This is a specific period in time in the 50s where there were expectations for how women needed to behave themselves. So if she was, let's say, a little opinionated, that might be seen as flying off the handles as someone who's a little assertive, a little emotional. You know, they're like, well. Would you believe it? I told Mrs. Redacted to stop being such a you-know-what, and then I smacked her in the face, and then she got really (laughs) upset, and she went home. Can you believe that? I can't believe it. (laughs) He said when she wasn't stressed, she was a, quote, very pleasant girl, good worker, and intelligent, end quote. Very strange. Yeah, that's kind of... (laughs) I was like, all right. And then the plant medical examinator said he believed she was a hypochondriac, Hmm. but gave no evidence. It was just, that was the statement. All right. All right. So let's take a look at the interview with Mrs. Redacted. All right, let's do it. What done she's seen. Yeah, I can't wait. Okay. (laughs) After all this. All right. So she's a mom. She has a husband. She has a five-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son, and her mother lives with her. So she was out doing some shopping. At 5.30 p.m., she left her house and drove alone in their family car, which was a 1940 Oldsmobile sedan. She wanted to buy some milk. She was in the store 10 to 15 minutes, and then she drove east along Stevens Avenue. Now, from here on out, there's a lot of specific descriptions of where she drove and cross streets and how far away other things were. And I actually think that's why there were maps in the case file, is because she was so specific about where she was at every point in time in her sightings, because she was driving. And at some point, she would stop the car and get out and then continue to drive and follow these uh, lights that she would see, which I'll talk about. All right. So I'm not going to name every street that she turned on and followed and that sort of thing. But just so you're aware, I think that's why there were maps because she was so descriptive. But so that's in the report. She says very specifically, I did this. I made a left turn here and that kind of thing. Okay. Exactly. And the street was this far away. Okay. So she says it was a dark, clear, dry night. She describes it as being lovely and crisp, but there was no moon. It was very dark, and the streets were very lonely. <laughs> so no one else was around. Sounds like the beginning of like one of those, <laughs> one of those noir detective books or something. <laughs> so she looks ahead, and she sees a pair of headlights through her windshield. She's like, well, that's strange. So she glances at her rearview mirror, and she doesn't see anything. So the lights are pretty faint at this point, but they're clear enough to be distinguished, and she thinks that's unusual. So she stops her car, she gets out, the trees are pretty bare this time of year, so she can clearly see that there's light on the horizon as far as she can see, and she said it approached her in a straight line from the left of the gas tank. Now here it's not referring to the gas tank in her car This is actually a big storage tank for the Connecticut Light and Power Gas Company. There was also a hospital that hadn't yet been constructed. I think it was partially constructed. And she said the lights were visible to the right 
15 to 20 feet. And again, they looked like headlights. They were moving very fast. And she was, quote, amazed at the rapidity of its motion. So she inched her car down the hill slowly at three to five miles per hour to maintain the view and was kind of following it along. It came to a gradual stop uh, and it emitted great brilliance. They'd traveled from east to west and were now moving south and she's following them, flying at a slow speed just north of Stevens and then went to hang in midair over the armory building. Huh. So she's describing them as moving very fast, and then she's describing them as moving very slow. So I'm assuming it changed its momentum. Did she mention it making any noise at any point? No. Throughout the report, there's no mention of noise. It was quiet. Yeah, so so it was silent. That's really interesting. So, I mean, it wasn't a helicopter or anything. Oh, no. Just wait till she describes it in detail. It All was right. definitely not a helicopter. Okay. She said it was big, terribly big. And she could see the top of it as it traveled across her path. And as far as the altitude goes, she says it must have been pretty low because she can see it being reflected off the lights from the nearby business district. Hmm. She thought maybe it was four telegraph poles up. And I quote, it's the most beautiful piece of mechanism I've ever seen. It's out of this world. I would not call it a flying saucer. I would call it a ship. It was dome-shaped, perfectly stainless steel with the height of two family houses. Really? That's what she said. It was an an eight to nine minute sighting, five to six minutes of which she spent standing and watching the road from the same spot. So you have... So I'm going to go on to give her description, and then I'm going to describe what I think she was seeing, because it kind of gets interesting here. So she says she was standing, and there was this beautiful band of white light about 10 feet high, extending from one end of the ship to the other in a horizontal and circumferential direction. It was 10 feet above the base of the ship, and there was another 20 feet of metal on top of it. The band was transparent, and through the band, she could see machinery. She says a vast amount of machinery within the ship reaching up to the dome. She said six men could walk shoulder to shoulder around the ship between the machinery in the center and the glass encasement on the outer edge. The machinery was the same metallic substance as the fuselage, which was a dull finished stainless steel. There was nobody moving, there was no sound, and she felt felt boundlessly fearless during this encounter. Weird. It goes on. Okay. <laughs> there was one red tail light, a fourth of the size of the headlight located a few feet below the top of the band of light that was inside the ship, but the headlights were in the middle of the band and flush with the outer shell. Nothing was blinking, and she calls it a work of art. The bottom of it was flat, and there were intricate patterns of lines and shapes, angular and dissimilar to one another, made of the same dull stainless steel. She saw no bolts, joints, landing gear, or doors. Hmm. 
It traveled away at the same altitude along Connecticut Avenue towards the Long Island Sound where it would go over the hill and disappear. Huh, okay. So she went home and she told her mom a few days later. She told her husband and then later she would go on to tell her supervisors. But it wasn't very well received, so she wasn't providing any details at this point. She kind of just dropped it. Yeah, because... As we know, (laughs) you don't want to go around saying this stuff, you know? So the way I picture it with with her description, she actually drew or whoever took the report drew an object because the way she describes it, I think it's kind of hard to picture. Yeah. So if you picture a dome with a flat bottom, in the back there's a red taillight, it's pretty small. In the front there's two headlights, almost like a car. Okay. Okay. And then there's, in between the headlight and that taillight, there's that band of white light behind which is the machinery. Hmm. But it doesn't sound like it's inside the ship. It sounds like it's behind or contained within the band of white light. Right. And then underneath of it, you have all those intricate patterns and lines that she's talking about. It must have been pretty close if she could look up and make out those details. That's pretty wild. It is pretty wild. What a high hat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and then she would see it again. January 29th at 3 p.m., she was sitting, they called it a rest room, but there were other people there. It sounds like a lounging room. Okay. And the place was redacted, but she said it was on the second floor. It had an eastern exposure, and she looked outside, and there was something flying by in an arc and she knew right away what it was but it went by so fast she didn't dare mention it to the other people in the room she said it was the size of a nickel coin and flying at the altitude of a conventional aircraft so very very far away yeah and maybe she thought she saw it i mean it's hard for me to imagine that it's she would know for sure it's the same object at such a distance right this one it might be that she saw a regular airplane at a great distance and because of the atmospheric conditions or maybe it was flying in and out of clouds or whatever, maybe she thought she saw it, but she did not did not really see it. And at that point, she's so freaked out that she's just like, it has to be the same thing. Right, because this has to be a life-changing event, seeing something like this so close. Well, they interviewed the mother after this, and she said that three days later, she was looking out the kitchen window, and she saw a streak due west about a foot-long, sharply defined light going really fast. It was so fast, she didn't have time to draw the curtain to show her daughter. It was like a big cigar, only thicker, she said, like a large neon tube traveling across the sky from the north to the south, above the horizon, at a great distance. She said it was definitely not a shooting star. Huh. Well, and there are a great deal of cigar-shaped UFO reports out there. Yeah, but her daughter's description was very unusual. I've never heard of any UFO like this before. It does remind me of certain descriptions that I've seen in the past. For example, with the Illinois 2000 triangles, some of the witnesses described that the the uh, UFOs had a texture they described as sort of like um like the star destroyers from Star Wars or something, right? Like they had 
structures and things coming off of them. She yes. describes it as machines. Other people have described it in other ways, but um, I have seen descriptions that remind me of that for sure. All right. Well, I just like to point out too, she waited a while to report this. She saw it in January and she didn't report it until October. And she was asked by the field agent why she had waited so long. And basically she said what a lot of people say. She didn't want to be ridiculed at the time. And then the more she thought about it, the more she thought she should go ahead and report it. Well, and I would also like to point out that in 1952, we have one of the most significant UFO events ever to happen in the United States, which was from July 12th to July 29, we had the 1952 Washington DC flap, which, um, you know, it's the closest thing we've ever had to a UFO landing on the white house lawn. I mean, like literally they were all over the Capitol. The military didn't know what the heck they were. We did an episode on it, so I won't go into detail, but it could be that after that event hit the newspapers, it started to, I mean, I know October is quite a ways after July, but it's not that long after July. So maybe, you know, stuff was hitting the newspapers all the time and she thought, well, maybe I'll finally report this. Maybe it'll be safe to report. Yes, that's a, that's a good point. Although there's always that brain tumor. You never know. Yeah. You never know. That hypochondriac. Yeah. <laughs> well, she is a hypochondriac, brain tumor ridden hi hat. So, so there you go. <laughs> Those dang hi hats—they like to talk about UFOs. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. It's well, and that's the thing. Like Heineck has complained in his files. If you read about, you know, what he writes, he'll complain that he doesn't have enough personnel to investigate stuff. He's an astronomer, and yet he spends a lot of time. I don't know if Heineck was the one investigating this particular case, but. You know, it just it seems strange to me that they would waste so much time and resources going after character witnesses, basically, instead of investigating the actual sighting, you know? This is a pretty thorough statement, though. Yeah. That she gave. And uh, very detailed. I don't, I don't know. It reminds me of, do you remember the episode, the Blue Book episode we did where I talked about the Christmas tree? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of yeah. course. This is just a really unique sighting. I liked it. Yeah, that is a really cool one, actually. And there's a lot of stuff like that. There's so many sightings in the files like that, which is why I encourage everybody, if you ever have some downtime, just go peruse the files. You'll be surprised at what you find. There's a lot of really good stuff in there. All right. So is that uh, the end of that particular file? That's all she had to say. That was a good one, man. That was really good. All right. So I'll get to my next one, which is, of an event that happened on June 29th, 1947. I was I wanted to look at the really early stuff. Those were fun. Yeah. The early things are fun. Because we, like, we barely had jets at this point. Like it was, our technology was very primitive. So if something, you know, weird happened, it probably wasn't us, you know, but you never know. Anyways, June 29, 1947, incident number 43 from Clarion, Iowa. It was a civilian witness. At 1645 CST, and that would be 445 in the afternoon, uh, the shape was an inverted saucer, and the size was 175 to 250 feet in diameter, and it was uh, 12 feet thick. The course was was south-southeast to northwest-east, and the uh, the number in the group was five in the first group and 13 in the second. It made a sound like an electric motor 
or a, a dynamo, the color of the objects was dirty white and their speed was 300 miles an hour. Their approximate altitude was 1,200 miles an hour and the observation was a ground observation and the things were traveling in a single file formation, so in a line. Weird. So you have a bunch of off-white saucers that are flipped around traveling in a straight, a straight line. line. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's the first, that's like the first page. That's like the summary page. On page two, it says incident number 21. I think it's so, it said incident number 43, but it's weird because in this file, there appear to be two separate files for the same incident. So it's number 43 and number 21. And I couldn't figure out, it doesn't say anywhere in the files why there were two separate entries for this one. It's kind of weird. Maybe it was a clerical error. I don't know. But again, um, on, the, on the 29th of June, 1947, 1645, Des Moines, Iowa, the observer, a bus driver, reported observing 13 objects at 1,200 feet altitude traveling in a straight line in file at 300 miles an hour. The objects were elliptical in form, inverted saucers, 12 feet thick, 175 to 250 feet in diameter, dirty white, and made a sound like an electric motor or dynamo. There was no further information supplied except that the observer stated they looked like dots in the sky. But, I mean, 250 feet is pretty dang big, right? A 250-foot object at 1,200 feet is not going to be a dot in the sky. It's going to be pretty big. So I think what that suggests is that the observer is not that good at estimating these things. So I think we can take these numbers that were given and more or less disregard the specific numbers and don't worry about the altitude or the size of the objects. Just stick with upside down off-white saucers. Rather, yeah, they saw something and they perceived it as being fairly large and fairly low. Because 1,200 feet... Like, if you saw a jumbo jet flying at 1,200 feet above you, you'd probably crap your pants. That's, like, pretty low. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's pretty low for something to be flying. You'd be able to make out details and things on it. You know, it, it's not like when it's flying up, up at altitude at, like, 30,000 feet or something where you just see, like, a little dot. So they may be mistaken about some of those numbers, and that's just their best estimation. So AMC Opinion, Air Material Command, AMC Opinion... These objects were seen just outside Des Moines and were flying toward Des Moines. If they were not ordinary objects mistaken for something else by the observer, but were really unusual aircraft, it seems almost certain that someone else would have also reported them. There is insufficient, um, uh, insufficient information for a proper analysis. And again, we have this strange idea that, well, nobody else reported it, so it didn't happen, you know? Which is like, no, <laughs> dude, stuff goes unreported all the time. Well, and how many people walk around just looking up at the sky? Right. Yeah, it's so weird. And there's there's a lot of different psychological things that can happen. Like, people can see it, and then they can just sort of shrug and go about their day, and it just sort of... You know, it's like fitting the square peg into the round hole. It just doesn't fit into their brain as something that should be there. So they just sort of, you know, it just sort of slips from their memory. Or maybe they're afraid to report it or whatever. I mean, there's any number of reasons why somebody wouldn't report things. And, like, I saw a weird thing myself that I've talked about on this show that I didn't report. Because it's like, well, what are they going to do? I report it. You know, that that was the one that looked like a satellite, but it stopped mid-path. I talked about that on a previous episode, I'm pretty sure. But, um, 
yeah, so I, I, I just, that really just kind of irks me that they're, it just seems lazy, you know? It just seems pretty lazy for them to say, well, nobody else reported it to us, so it didn't happen. Anyways, on page three, uh, this is this is a summary, again, probably written by Alan Hynek. He says, there is no obvious astronomical explanation for this incident. If the estimates, If the estimate of size can be given any credence at all, the objects could not have been farther than five miles away. This is an absolute upper limit, and objects probably were very much closer. Now, take that with a grain of salt, because this guy was an astronomer, and he didn't know about, like, visual acuity and, you know, the sensitivity of the human eye and all that stuff. And it's, uh, I don't want to go into a whole discussion. I talked about this during the Kenneth Arnold case that, that I did a while back on this show. But basically, our eyes are a lot more sensitive and can see things a lot farther away under good conditions than you might expect, particularly for people who have good eyesight. Anyways, page four, um, this, uh, this is page four and five are summaries. Uh, no page four says this incident refers to the same sighting by the same observer as that summarized in incident 21. See that report for conclusions. So page five and six are from two different files. It appears and these are just summaries of data, and it's um they they call it a uh, a checklist unidentifying flying unidentified flying objects, and it just lists certain data like the date, the time, the location, uh, the the name, the occupation. One of them says agent of amazing stories magazine. The other one says bus driver. I'm not sure why there's that discrepancy there because everything else is pretty much the same, including the address, which is box 12 Crocker M O. And I think I'm pretty sure M O is Montana. Isn't yeah, it? I think yeah. So, so everything else is the same. Um, the number of objects five and then 13, 1200 feet, 300 miles an hour, uh, direction of flight, North, Northwest single file line, uh, sound like an electric motor or dynamo. And you know, that all that good stuff we've already talked about. And there's two separate pages that summarize this, and I just find that very strange. Um, who knows? Maybe they reported it twice. Maybe they sent in a report. They didn't get a response from the from the Air Force, so they sent it in again to make sure that the Air Force received it. So that's why there's two case files. I don't know. I really don't know. But it, I'm I'm guessing that the explanation as to why there are two separate files is maybe not anything suspicious. It's probably a simple error of some kind. But it is interesting that the occupation is different for, for the reports when it's very clearly the exact same report. Okay, so on page 7, it says, About seven miles out of Clarion, Iowa, observer saw an object shoot across the sky in front of the bus he was driving. It was followed by four more. The height appeared about 1,200 feet. Observers stepped out of the bus, which was facing east, and noticed some dots in the sky approaching from the opposite direction. They were flying about the same altitude at a speed of about 300 miles an hour. These 13 objects flew in a single file. Roughly, the objects were between a circle and an oval in shape. In appearance, they looked like an inverted saucer flying through the air. The thickest part seemed to be about 12 feet. The diameter could have been anywhere from 175 to 250 feet. They were dirty white in color. The second group disappeared into the north-northwest sky in a matter of a few minutes. They, make a, they made a noise as they passed overhead similar to an electric motor or dynamo. 
And that's sort of, uh, I mean, I guess it could be an airplane noise. I mean, that this these could be airplanes, you know? They very well could be, but they don't sound like airplanes. And it does sound like the occupation's bus driver. It's describing getting off a bus and, and looking. And right. So that implies he was driving. Yeah. And, but it makes you wonder why that one page says that it was like uh, somebody from, an agent from the magazine, from uh, Amazing Stories magazine or whatever. I don't know. It's weird. Maybe the information came from the magazine. Ah, could that actually, that could be. Maybe that's where they got this from. Who knows? Maybe one report is from the magazine, and then another report is from them, the person themselves sending it in, right? That Actually, that's a good idea. I didn't think of that. <laughs> I think Agent Ether has solved it. Solved the mystery. All right, so page eight, we have a page from... Um, from what looks like the grudge report, like I talked about in the, the previous case and with case 21 circled and it's, um, it's listed under three non-astronomical with no explanation evident subcategory B evidence offered suggests no explanation suggesting that the case is unsolved. So the next page in the files is uh, that. So that was the whole thing. That was the whole thing. The next page is like a separate entry, but it's incident 21 with the same information summarized. And at the bottom is written in hand, not typed. It's uh, the explanation is written other unreliable report, but they don't give any explanation as to why the report is unreliable. Cause it's a bus driver. How dare they? I guess. I mean, the only thing that seems unreliable is probably the explanation of the speed and size and altitude or whatever that's probably not accurate, but it's a bus driver. You know, how is he supposed to know how fast something is in the sky? He doesn't have a radar. So how does he know how high up it is? You know, he has no way to know that he's just giving his best guess. So the next page in the file is another page, another, like a single page file. Um, and it's a, like a cover page. And this time there's a summary that says observer sighted several large saucers heading Northwest. They were of a dirty white color Later, he saw more heading west. And again, it says that it was an unreliable report, but there's no explanation as to how they came to this conclusion. It just says it's unreliable. And it's it's kind of unfortunate because this could be a very compelling report and it appears to be unidentified, yet they claim that there's a solution, the solution being that the witness is unreliable, which they would later sometimes referred to as crackpot or abbreviated CP in the official files. Um, I wasn't there. I didn't interview the fella, but who knows? I still think it's an interesting case, uh, an inter interesting report, sure. even yeah. if there's not a whole lot to it. All right. Did you have any more short ones, Agent Ether? I'm good to go until our next Blue Book episode. I love these episodes. Yeah. All right. Then I have one more. This one's really, really short. It's just a really short three-page report from June 22, 1947, from Greenfield, Massachusetts. Uh, it was a civilian witness. One object, they observed it for 8 to 10 seconds. It was a ground visual observation, and the course was 350 degrees. I don't know what that means, just 350 degrees. The conclusion was A slash C for aircraft, and the brief summary, the, um, this is page one, the brief summary is, Object was round and irregular and a polished aluminum. Hmm, okay. Irregular, that's a strange description. So page two says, Incident 46, 
This incident does not admit of a ready astronomical explanation. The absence of a trail does not favor the meteoric hypothesis, although the speed and brilliance of the object might. And page three is Dr. Hynek's evaluations extracted from Project Grudge Report, and it's under one astronomical B, subheading B, fair or low probability, and the 46 for this you know, this one is number 46 is circled and that's it. There's just three pages in the file. And I feel like there has to be pages missing here, right? So we have an object that's described as round and irregular and a polished aluminum. And yet Heineck says that it's probably not a meteor because it doesn't have a trail, but it was moving fast enough. And the brilliance of the object the brilliance of the object and the speed suggest it could be a meteor. Like, well, what, like meteors move really, really fast, like 250,000 miles an hour. Like they're, they are super, super fast. Don't want to be hit with one. Yeah. If a meteor was to streak from horizon to horizon, which they generally don't because they burn up or whatever, I've never seen it happen. I'm not sure if it's possible, but imagine a streaking meteor. It would go from horizon to horizon like in just a second or two, like it would just be boom, boom, and it would be there. So we're talking about an object that appears to be irregular, round and irregular, and a polished aluminum moving incredibly quickly. And that's it. That's all we have for this file. And like, there's no witness statement. There's no other information. And it's just, it's like really tantalizing because I feel like this is a really interesting case and it's missing. And that's all we have on it. And that's why I kind of wanted to talk about it because it's just a really fun and interesting mystery. And that's it. That's the whole file. Just those three pages. Little tidbit. Yeah, a little tidbit. Um, maybe little tease. Maybe somebody out there knows about this case, and it's you know there's information elsewhere available. Maybe from a newspaper or a book or something. Who knows? Maybe there's more out there to this case. But that's all I found in the blue book files. All right. Well, I think is that all we have this week. That's all we have. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. If you enjoyed the show, you can help us out by checking out the affiliate link in the description. This week, we've got some books by Alan Hynek. He wrote a few books at probably mostly after his tenure as uh, the lead investigator, scientific investigator for Project Blue Book. After Blue Book ended, he did a complete 180. And instead of being skeptical, he became a believer, essentially, in that, you know, the UFOs were real and even, you know, that maybe ETs were piloting those UFOs. So he wrote some books such as The Edge of Reality or Night Siege or some other things like that. And they will be in the link in the description. So check them out. This is an affiliate link and your purchase helps to support the show and doesn't cost you anything extra. Buy Agent Anderson a new microphone. Well, I mean, yeah, I, have pretty, <laughs> I have a pretty good microphone, but I mean, you could always get a better one, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and keep it strange. Keep it strange. 